Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 343 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week, I hosted another fantastic Australian photographer specializing in aerial work, Chris Saunders. Chris comes highly recommended by his peers from Down Under and has an incredible portfolio of images to go along with those recommendations. I had such a blast speaking to him and I think you will enjoy our chat. If you're new to this podcast, you'll quickly learn that we are completely listener supported on Patreon. I depend on our listeners to keep the show going. I purposely do not accept advertisements on the show because I only want to be accountable to you, the listener. If you find value in what we are doing here, please do take a moment to support us on Patreon. I understand that everyone's budget and situation is different, but if you're getting any value out of listening to the show, I think anything more than $0 is fair. If you can't support us on Patreon, you can always help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. Also, I've begun launching discussion threads on Patreon that you can participate in whether or not you support the show. So check those out. Thanks in advance. All right, let's get to this week's episode with Chris Saunders. All right, Chris Saunders, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to uh, finally talk to you in person. I feel like every single Australian photographer that's been on the podcast has said, you got to get Chris Saunders because he is super fun and interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure you got the right Chris Saunders, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, look, I, I guess, yeah, as you, I think as you've mentioned before, we've got quite a close, uh, you know, it's not, not a big community of photographers in, in Australia and, and, um, yeah, we do, we do hang out a fair bit together and, and listen, listen to the podcast in the car and, um, yeah, certainly you've been keeping me, keep you and your guests have been keeping me company for the last month traveling around New Zealand and, um, yeah, giving me some good food for thought. So yeah, um, please be okay. part of it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. I'm, I'm a big fan of your photography as well. I feel like there must be something in the water out there in Western Australia because you guys are producing some incredible photography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world to live. And um, we're definitely, we're definitely lucky to have some incredible scenery um, in the state. Having said that, you know, it's still, um, you know, you can still fly a few thousand kilometers to have to get to it where it's, so, um, you know, it's one state, but it's a, but it's a big place, I guess. Yeah. It's funny. Every time someone talks about Australia, I'm reminded of like in school, they always, you know, you take like a map of the world and then you, you know, because of the weird way the globe works, everything mm-hmm. is not the right proportions. But if you actually take Australia and you put it on top of other countries, it's freaking massive. It is, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. Um, it's a it's a very big place. Yeah. Right, but there's not a lot of people. Considering there's not a lot of people, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of space between people, which yeah, from right. a landscape perspective, can make it can make it um, a really rewarding place to tour and visit. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, I, and sure. I guess given the given the events of the last few years, you know, um, that's allowed us to you know to tour locally and stay locally and enjoy and enjoy and experience some of those um some of those sites and landscapes i feel like you're the first australian photographer that has framed covid in such a positive way (laughs) Uh, i learned genuinely i did i did find it because um i'm i'm originally from the uk um and um so spend a lot of time traveling back to the uk to see friends and family 
and and I guess not being able to do that freed us up to uh, you know, to do other things. And um, yeah, I certainly felt that I got my value out of WA over the last few years. Yeah, it's been, been yeah. brilliant to be able to stay here and see that. Right. Well, well, Chris, for for people that. Uh, aren't familiar with you, don't know anything about your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and who Chris Saunders is? Yeah, so um, I, uh, I'm i currently living in Perth, Western Australia. I've been here for about, um, oh, I guess about 15, 16 years now. Um, originally from just outside London in, in the UK and went to university in Southampton, studying engineering. Um, and then, uh, and still do work at work full time as an engineer. Um, and that brought me a few years ago out to out to Perth, Western Australia, with with my wife. And then we had a daughter out here. She's now eleven, and um, growing up here, enjoying everything that WA has to offer. You know, kids, and um, you know, it's a great place for them to grow up. And yeah, that's that's pretty much us. You know. Um, so Lorna, Caitlin, myself, and and our and our dog Izzy. That's uh, that's us as a unit. How did you get into photography as an engineer? Ah, oh, that's a good question. So um, I guess I first got into um, photography when I was at school back in the sixth form. So when I was sort of 16, 17, 18, um, we had a dark room at my at my school and. Um, Used to used to spend my lunch times in there processing images, and and I wasn't very good at it, and I, and and I didn't really know what I was doing, and and I guess as a result, when I when I left school, I pretty much stopped stopped anything to do with ph- photography other than you know just the, the usual film happy snaps. I don't think they had they didn't have iPhones with cameras and things back then, so yeah, everything was on film which in some ways is probably good because it means there's less photographic records of some of the other things we've got up <laughs> at university and things like that. I'd hate to be a kid yes. growing up now and all, all that technology around recording everything. Um, wow. But, yeah, I, I basically then put the camera down and, and you know, I've lived in some, visited some pretty amazing places and I, uh, one of my big regrets is that I didn't continue with photography for that period because now I'm having to revisit all those all those locations or be left with... Uh, regret that um that, that we never you know i never took that opportunity but then I, I i guess i got back in through to photography when my um uh, when my daughter was born and i i you know it, for me it was an opportunity to try and document her growing up and so on and i you know i, I rediscovered a, a love for it and and quite enjoyed that aspect um and then i just you know started taking taking pictures of of landscapes as a bit of an escape from, from I guess the pressures and the stresses of, of engineering and, and you know something something for the soul rather than for the for the head. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. how I sort of got back into it. Okay, and then what kind of what kind of engineering are you doing? That's a good question as well. So I'm, uh, I'm it's a bit of a it's a bit of a uh, um, specialist discipline. I'm a subsea engineer. Um, so what that oh. means is I look after assets, which um, an infrastructure that lives and operates on the on the seabed, and my my job is to make sure that it stays you know fit for purpose and you know doesn't harm the environment and keeps operating and and so on. So um, yeah, that's that's in the oil and gas industry. I guess that's that's becoming quite a quite a um, quite a challenging environment to 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 work in um, polit- politically and environmentally. 
but you know, I, I, I feel that the part that, um, that I work in, you know, that's that's definitely contributing to to keeping that operating safe and um, you know doing um, doing what we can to um, you know keep keep the keep the lights on in people's homes, sort of thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had any internal cognitive dissonance working in oil and gas, but it seems to me like the answer would be pretty simple because your job is to make sure there's no leaks, which I think is a pretty important job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and look, it's not in, uh, I, I suppose it's probably off topic a bit, but it's not in anyone's interest, whether it's uh, whether it's an oil and gas operator or, or, or the public or the environment for those things to things to happen so you know everyone strives to to stop stop that happening and then you i I guess as a society we've learned and are learning that there are better ways that we can manage the environment going going forward in terms of carbon emissions and so on and that's that's a journey that the planet is as a whole is on arguably perhaps we should have started a lot a lot earlier down down that pathway but but until then you know there's still a dependency on these products and and we all need them to currently fuel our cars and etc yeah yeah well earlier you said that you got into the photography side of things to kind of feed your heart and your soul because Mm -hmm. engineering is feeding your brain but i'm guessing that engineering at least to some degree informs your approach to photography and i'm curious if you could maybe articulate some ways in which your engineering background has influenced your approach to making images I, I guess yeah the ma- the main one is you know I couldn't do without either of these things you know they, they um, if you know if someone said you know do you want to you know, follow photography full time and and give up engineering I, I think the answer would be no you know I I, <laughs> I need that I need that mental stimulation and challenge that comes comes with that part of my my life and and equally I, I find myself getting pretty low and down and lacking energy if I don't if I don't spend the time in, in the photography space as well, and they probably consume about an equal amount of time in my in my week, so forty hours plus a week in terms of the engineering. And, I'm, and, and I would say, you know, in a normal week, I would do about the same in the photography space as well. So, not mm-hmm. certainly it's uh, it's not full time, but it's a significant you know significant part of, of what I do. I suppose that the, there's you know from a from a um, visual perspective, you know, keeping things simple is is one thing I get from engineering. You know, not over not over engineering, not not over complicating uh, an image, mm. um, and and I find a beauty in in simplicity and, and, and sort of a minimalist um, style. You know, I find a lot of enjoyment in lines and geometry. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to also look for, and, and the, the only real way I can sort of describe it is a balance in the image, and, and I sort of see areas of, of heaviness and weight, and a, and a sort of central pivot point, and, and sort of visualise the image in terms of whether it's um, you know, loaded in a particular corner or not. So I, I don't really know how mm-hmm. to describe that uh, any better, other than I sort of see the image almost as a as a as a mass and um and and look at um how that that sort of is is balanced overall um i guess the other thing is i've i've not really had any formal training in photography or arts or or anything like that and as a result i don't really know the what the what the rules are and um to some extent i guess that means i'm not encumbered by that and i can just do what feels right right to me um, mm-hmm. and um, quite often I'll then find out 
you know, someone will say, oh, you, you know, your images have this associated with them. And, uh, and you know, it's just, um, it's not, it's not a learned thing. It's just, uh, it's just what, what felt right. So um, that's, that's one other area. And look, I, I think planning is a, is a big thing for me. And, and uh, I guess we'll talk a bit more about that um, as, as yeah. we move on. You know, attention to detail is something that's critical in engineering. And I think you would see that in a lot of my prints that um, mm -hmm. yeah, they're very, they're, they're, I like to think they're quite um, quite refined. And I've, I've looked at scan the edges, you know, all those sorts of things, cross the I's, dotted the T's. I think those are the main things. Um, I'm probably more of a proactive than reactive photographer. So I tend to mm -hmm. have things that I'm, I'm looking at um, I'm looking in advance for things rather than reacting at things that are coming to me. The, the main mm -hmm. exception to that would be aerial photography, bizarrely, but but for landscape, you know, on the ground photography, that to me is very proactive, and uh, and the aerial stuff is is the probably exception that's that's reactive. Um, that's fascinating I, because um, a friend, a really good friend of mine that I do a lot of my photography with, Kane. He we do a lot of aerial photography together with drones. But primarily, he finds his subjects almost always ahead of time. Like on Google Earth, he'll he'll yep. find areas and he'll be like, "Okay, this looks really promising," and so and then we'll scout it with our drones. And you know, so he so it's interesting that you say that the the aerial photography is more reactive because I found in my own aerial photography, I'm the same way. Like I don't like it's fun to go with him because he's like. This area is very target rich because I've scouted it mm -hmm. on Google Earth, and I'm like, great! I will fly over there and see what I find. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and look, that's that's pretty much my approach as well, Matt. Um, so there's a lot of planning that goes up before I go and do an aerial trip, but then, you know, inevitably, what you find on the day is very different to to you know to what you expect to see, or you find stuff on the way that um, that you know. Mm -hmm. the, you know, is more interesting and you and you and you divert and you and you go off and you you explore that sort of thing so um yeah it's it's definitely for me a very reactive part of photography aerial photography especially when you when you're doing it i think from an aircraft rather than a drone especially when you've got such a big area that you can play in um mm -hmm. then you 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 really do find that reactiveness takes over yeah that that makes a lot of sense and I want to go back a little bit to, to where you were talking about visual weight because I think that's an area that um, photographers could probably spend much more time thinking about or at least being co cognitive of visual weight in their images. And I'm glad you brought it up as something that you're kind of intuitively just good at because I'm, I think that gives you a very strong advantage because I feel like for a lot of photographers, that's not something that they do well at all in fact that's one of the big biggest critiques i have of other people's images when they ask me for a, for for critique where i'm like this part of the image takes up you know 40 percent of your photograph and there's nothing interesting in it you know so like yeah what's going on there you know or like two-thirds of your image is taken up over here on the left hand side of this object and then there's nothing on the right hand side to counterbalance that at all so mm -hmm. it's like you got to think about that stuff you do. It's even things like, um, you know, if you think of, uh, say, just a lever or even a seesaw or something like that, you know, the, the, the more you move an element to the edge of the seesaw or something like that, then it has a bigger impact on the, on the image. And that's the same with distractions in images as well, where you have, you know, 
elements on the edge or close to the edge, you know, they can have a disproportionate impact on the on the balance of an image sort of thing. So, um, yeah, and there's all sorts of ways that that can be affected, whether it's through, you know, whether it's through saturation, whether it's through you know, contrast mm -hmm. or texture or, or, or whatever it is. But yeah, there's a number of different things that contribute to that weight. But um, generally speaking, knowing where your where your centers of mass are in an image sort of helps you. <laughs> it's a very geeky conversation, but yeah, it helps you understand where your viewer's eyes are going to be pulled to, basically, a bit like you know, gravity. Well, it might be geeky, but I think it's probably one of the most overlooked aspects of composition personally well i love that you uh, talked about the engineering side of things i always like to ask this question of people on the show that are engineers because i don't know the answer and it's always a different answer is there any part of photography or what you've gained through photography that you've been able to apply to your engineering background oh that's a good question and i'm not sure i'm I can't think of anything obvious that's jumping out at me other than I, I just a greater, I, I think a greater appreciation for, um, for, for design in things and whether that's, um, you know, whether it's mother nature or, or, or whatever in terms of design or something on a piece of paper that, that you're looking at, just being able to stand back and see that overall um, you know, rather than the detail, you know, having that, having that sort of helicopter view and being able to appreciate something for its, for its simplicity and, and function or, or whatever, I think is something I get better. I've got better at since, uh, since my photography. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, that's awesome. See, that's, that's the kind of answer I was hoping you'd give me. <laughs> awesome. I think I'm going to guess this is a little bit from your engineering background, but I'm curious why do you think that the mundane aspects of photography are fun and what does focusing on them allow you to do as a photographer? Yeah. Okay. I can appreciate this might be a bit of a hard sell, but I'll, I'll, I'll go for it and see whether, <laughs> see whether I can drag anyone along with me on it. So I, I guess in the first instance, it feels to me, um, yeah, the, the analogy for me here is a bit like a child at Christmas. So, um, that, that, you know, of course, Christmas Day is this amazing day that, you know, that kids wake up excited for. But there's that whole build up to Christmas Day that kids get excited about as well. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure you did it as a kid. You know, you were looking through uh, looking through catalogues in terms of you know, presents and things like that that you might hope to get and, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. And. You know, it's it, it's not just a, you wake up on Christmas Day, Christmas happens, and it's over. You know, there is a you know, there's a there's a there's a thing around it, and so you know, this build up in terms of um, you know some of the planning around photography turns what might otherwise be a you know a one hour, one day, or say if you're really lucky, a one week you know sort of event or trip into something that you know that you can enjoy and anticipate over over a few months. So. Yeah, there is definitely that anticipation and excitement build up that, that happens when you when you do some of this stuff. The I guess the other thing and and the predominantly here I think we're talking about planning to be honest and and you know, mm -hmm. um, you know it allows me to forget about some of the hygienic things associated with a with a trip, you know, some of the logistics. And and that then allows me to think more creatively and frees me up to to think about the creative decisions that I want to make. 
yeah, there, there's some there's some good value in it from from that point of view, from my point of view. And it, you know, having a good plan as well also you know, gives you contingencies. Hopefully, yeah, you, know, you don't just have plan A. You know, hopefully you've got a plan A, plan B, and a plan C in case you need it, and and maybe even an idea for a plan D. But you know, it, it essentially means when things don't go to plan, you've got something that you can jump onto, and that you're not left in a location thinking well this isn't what i expected to find what do i do now and you and you lose the opportunity and you you sort of get a bit stressed and you know focusing on you know okay well i wasn't expecting this therefore i have to have to do that and i I, i've heard other photographers talk about you know plans tend to can limit people and i think they can if you just have a rigid plan then yes for sure that could be very very confining and you you don't look out think outside the box and, and look elsewhere but you know a good plan is for me about maximizing maximizing opportunity and um, allowing you to try and tease every bit of value out of the out of the moment you're in sort of thing. I'm, I'm sure you know it, it's basic in what every photographer does in some ways you know you're not gonna turn up for a beach to shoot a sunrise shot only to find that the tide was out yeah, that there's no water there. That that yeah, you turned up at midnight rather than six a.m. Yeah, you know, everyone to some extent is planning, is planning this stuff. It's just the degree to which you to which you go to sort of thing. Yeah, you know, you're going to look at, yeah, you know, you're going to look at the weather and those sorts of things. So you know, there is there's planning and there's planning, but um, you know, it. I I just find that the whole thing is part of a very exciting process and gets me. You know, it doesn't. Um, I, I think your 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 story earlier about your friend um, who's identifying target rich areas. You know, he's getting excited about that. You know, he's he's he's. Oh. Um, but there. but not only that. <laughs> I, I guess the trick is that there is, like you say, not just to. Um, so he's done the hard work for you. He's basically said, "There's a target rich area, you know, and then you can go explore." And that's that's essentially he's done your planning and pre work for you to, to rather than yeah. you putting the drone up and going, "Oh, there's nothing here." Um, what do I do now? Yeah, I've got now got half a day where with nothing to shoot, sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. No, it's funny because some of that I think is personality driven as well. Um, because I and some of it for me is like I used to be that guy. I used to be like I would have like if I did a like a seven day trip in fall, I would have I would know exactly where I was going to be on what days. And now I have like a more flexible idea where it's like I have a list of ideas that of, or places mm-hmm. or subjects and then I can kind of pick and choose based on the weather or whatever and so I think I think there's a balance to be struck there but I do think that um, there's a lot to be said for coming up with lots of ideas lots of plans and then having the temperament and the skill set to be able to pivot or adjust if you need to yeah, I think that's that's probably well that's well summarised, Matt. That's definitely what I the, the way I tend to approach it. You know, I've just spent a, um, a a month touring the South Island of, of New Zealand, and yeah, well, I had areas that I was planned to be in for particular days, and as a rule, they're, they're quite hard to change. But you know, I did I did do that a couple of times due to due to some significant weather. Um, Generally speaking, when you're in an area, you say, "Okay, I'm going to be in this in this space for four or five days." You know, here's a list of various different things. 
you know, that, that I'm going to go do while I'm there. And, you know, you, you might even go to say to the extent of saying, okay, well, these ones I want to be in this area for sunrise or sunset. And therefore, you know, they need to be done in a morning or an afternoon. But then, yeah, on, on a given day, you're sort of waking up or the night before you're planning that morning and saying, okay, well, for the conditions today, which, you know, what's today's plan, basically? Yeah, no, it's, I think that's, I think that's a really good approach for sure. And I, I can appreciate getting excited about the planning aspect of photography. I just, um, for me, it's not the fun part for me, (laughs) but I don't think you're um, alone. I don't think you're alone. I think I'm probably more on the end of the spectrum on that one. No, but it's good because, um, like my friend Kane, he loves to plan ahead. Like I, I went to uh, Spain back in May and Neither him or I knew anything about northern Spain, but I knew if I invited him, which I wanted him to come with me no matter what, but I knew by inviting him, he would get super excited about finding all these little niche spots for us to go explore and photograph. And I knew that I didn't really have to do a ton of planning. I mean, there were spots that I wanted to go to as well, but man, we he, he had three times as many places for us to go photograph than we had time to do. So it was mm-hmm. perfect. <laughs> but that just means you've got three more trips to go back there. Oh, for sure. For sure. For yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny you brought up the tide because and I, I laughed when you said that because we, um, we're both from Colorado. So like we don't deal with tide much. Right. You know, so, mm-hmm. and, but, so we had like, we knew, okay, this is a sunset or a sunrise shot, but we had completely disregarded like the dramatic changes that can happen at tide like we knew about tide charts and all that but like holy smoke some of those scenes like you have to have high tide or it's it's like a completely different landscape you know mm-hmm. so yeah that was a good lesson <laughs> yeah for sure and the, yeah. there's, there's some of that with um just basic stuff with aerial photography as well that you you obviously don't want to be shooting into the sun over water because of uh, because of glare you know you lose all the color and things like that so yeah, just planning the time of day that you're going to shoot and being conscious that, that it can have an impact, you know, is, is really important. And, you know, most people would have been on a workshop somewhere, but probably, you know, and they, they turn up at a location with a big group, you know, you know the, the workshop leader, you know, puts them in the right position at the right time to get that shot. And that's because those guys have done that planning. And, and probably what isn't visible to everyone is the fact that they've got two or, other, two or three other locations lined up as backups in case that one can't work on that day or, or whatever as well. So, you know, I think, um, you know, whether, whether people are running workshops or, um, or attending them, you know, planning's, planning's sort of a hidden, a hidden thing there that, you know, really gets, get, lets people get value out of their, their time. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing for me. My, my time is probably the most valuable thing that I have. And, and yes. planning for me is about maximizing that, that, you know, the value that I get out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of planning, let's talk a little bit about projects. I'd be curious for you to talk a little bit about your approach to uh, planning photography projects. I have a concept I use, which is sort of starting with the end in mind. And that, and that really starts with, defi- you know, defining what the objective is and the concept and, and then going on from there. But but more than that, I suppose there's a, um, I, I don't know if you've come across him, but there's a motivational speaker from, on TED that I came across a few years ago called Simon Sinek. 
And yeah, it's um, great. Start, start, it, start with the why, right? Start with the why. Exactly. So, you know, if you don't know why you're going to do something, then, you know, it, it, things unravel pretty quickly from there and you can find your, your, your work without, you know, direction or, you know, or, or, you know, intent. So really for me that it does start with the why, you know, why, why am I doing this? Um, and then, and then what do I want to achieve out of it? And, and how am I, and then you can get into the, how am I, how am I, I going to go through that? Now, I, look, I'm not going to, to expand on that anymore and, and just say, yeah, you, YouTube Simon Sinek and, and, and watch his talks on this. He, he, you know, he, this is his space, but, um, but that whole concept is probably a bit of a philosophy I tend to apply to the, apply to the planning. And then the other thing, which is probably from from my engineering background, is something called it's called front end loading, which is really which is really dry and boring. But basically, the premise is that the more effort you put in up front on something, the, the, the higher the rewards down the down the track, and you minimise the yeah you minimise the likelihood for mistakes and, and so on. So yeah, the, for for me, the it it just spending that time planning maximises the the. The, you know, the, the, the quality of what you're likely to produce at the end. So, you know, really the process for me is go through, you know, get, get, obtain an idea, you know, research that, you know, come up with a, um, a, a concept around that and select that concept. Then you sort of go through into a phase of planning to, to, um, to you know, to execute that plan in the field. You would then, yeah. Then there's a period of post-production when you get back and the editing, and and then you turn that into a, a again, an engineering term, sort of a, you're you're fabricating, manufacturing, producing something. Yeah, whether that's an exhibition, whether it's a book, whether it's a print, you know, whether it's um, you know, yeah, whether it's a talk, wh- whatever it is. But there, you know, there's a deliverable effectively at the end of that at the end of that process. And so, you know, I tend to approach something with understanding why I'm going out to do it and then I build build those you know I basically have those stage gates and, and make those decisions as I go along yeah maybe maybe you could give us an example of an actual project that you you've worked on or that you're currently working on um, and tell us like what what was your why like I would love to hear you articulate kind of the connection between the work and the why yeah um, I I guess sometimes that's that's more of a. I, I actually str- I'm not very good at um, articulating some of that stuff. I'm, I'm another photographer, Chris Dark, who I, who I shoot with a fair bit. He's very good at, at you know when we shoot together, helping define that process. So if I, if we're doing projects, I tend to look at Chris to come up with that overarching message that that might pull pull um, pull something to, together, but. Yeah, I, I guess one project we did was um, we went out to Salt Flats and just shot um, for three or four days. We didn't really move. You know, we basically spent um, spent the time within, say, a kilometre of where we were where we were camping out there, and um, you you literally just watched the light change throughout the day. So yeah, the the scenery changed, but the location didn't. And I guess the why there was just about trying to trying to document and record light changing in the environment, and, and you know some of these sort of surreal 
scenes that you can encounter out there and and you know how they how they look at different times of day um so then when you've got that idea as a concept um and look i i think you know it it would be it, it would be neglected me not to not to reference murray frederick's work in that uh um yes in that space you know so um i i guess we definitely weren't going out to copy what what he was doing, but you know there was an element of seeing it and going, "Wow, that's pretty. That's a pretty interesting landscape." It being you know, really good to go and spend time out there, and we certainly didn't go to the extremes that he does. Of you know, I, th- I think he he really you know, throws himself into the environment and and so on. And this know, this was nothing. And, yeah, I remember I saw the film he put out, which was really awesome. You know, he's got the large format camera and. He's got a bicycle and he's riding out into the mud with his camera and his tripod. And then he's producing these really interesting long exposures on film. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember the name of the f- name of that film, but it's really fascinating. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But yeah, yeah that, that his work be, is really cool. Mm, it is. Um, so I, look, I, yeah, definitely not on on to the same um, extreme as, as as where he he took that work. But it, you know, for, for the most part, um, we just enjoyed spending three or four days really in you know in a very confined space, but both pointing our cameras pretty much in opposite directions, fo- photographing light for for want of a better word, rather than um, rather than detail. So we had. Um, a lot of the images were taken with Vaseline spread over filters so that you, all the oh. detail was taken away. Um, and okay. um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite a interesting cathartic sort of process to go through. And by the, you know, and the, and the, so that was the why the, what we were going to do was basically um, um, present that in an exhibition format. So again, we knew what the target was there and we knew that that exhibition format would be, say 15 to 20 large large prints you know 44 inch size size prints so we're not thinking volume of work we're thinking you know quality and and you know large large piece exhibition and then that then just drives the how you go you know how you position yourself best to go do that sort of thing yeah so you guys set out you had this um very specific why for this project i'm really curious to hear if while you were going through the process of creating the work or maybe after you were done creating the work, if there was anything that you learned either about yourselves or the landscape or the experience that maybe was unexpected um, that kind of helped maybe transform the why into something more than what you originally set out to do? Or is there anything, uh, is there anything there? I, look, I, I would say that, that as a, as a, as a whole, we definitely both grew photographically from that. And um, I think if you're going to do any sort of collaboration with another photographer, you always, you know, you're always going to be giving up something as part of that process. You know, you're going to have to compromise mm. part of your workflow. But I guess in return, what you what you hope for is that as a collective, you know, that the the, the you know that the one plus one equals three type thing comes to, comes. Uh-huh happen sort of thing and and i suppose the way you can do that is that you can learn off of each other so on day one we both turned up um you know at these sort of flats and we pretty much got out the car and we we walked we walked in separate directions and then we got you know we might have spent five six hours out there and we got back together 
you know, we talked what we've been doing during the day. We shared shared images of where we were at with stuff, and and you share ideas and concepts around that. And and slowly, the style of the photography changed over the next few days and sort of merged, if that makes sense. Now, when we went out on day four, we were still getting out the car and walking in separate directions. But we had sort of, um, yeah, the, the the style of the photography was getting quite close to, to each other, which is something, again, we, if you're going to have an exhibition, you almost need to decide whether you're going to very, um, whether you're going to um, have a consistent style to your to your images or whether you, you want to clearly say, you know, this is person's A style, this is person B, and, and they're very distinct and that there's no ambiguity, I guess, or, you know, sort of um, lack of, again, lack of direction in what you're, what you're trying to present. We, d- we definitely grew uh, um, and, and, and certainly the project evolved. And I don't think that at the start of the project was necessarily what, you know, the, what we ended up with was what we, what we wholly envisaged, but it was, it was 70% of what we, what we started with and, and the rest we, we learned along, along the way. I love that. And you had mentioned to me before we recorded that you're an introvert, which I don't think is a surprise. Most nature landscape <laughs> photographers are introverted, except for a few yeah. of us. But uh, I'm curious, how, how do you feel about working on photography projects with other creative folks as an introvert? Yeah, look, I, I suppose um, it's, it's, it can be a challenge. Um, and like you say, for me, photography is a very sort of personal and solitary you know, experience. It's, you know, my, one of the reasons I got into landscape photography is that I think, you know, as a photographer, your job is basically to sit with the subject, to, you know, to have a conversation with that subject and um, to get to understand its character and then find a way of, and then find a way of, you know, transcribing that and, and presenting that in, a, in an image. And, and whether that's of a person or, or whether it's of a landscape, you know, the, 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 I, I sort of feel the objective is still, still the same there. And as an, as an introvert, I struggle to do that with people. I, I really don't, um, you know, for me to lead that conversation is quite, um, is quite draining on me. Doesn't mean that I can't mm-hmm. do it. You know, most introverts are more than happy to, <laughs> you know, have conversations and things like that. But uh, you know, it just isn't something that I enjoy. So um, I, I guess as a as a result, I, I, going out into a landscape is about just sitting and listening. You know, and the landscape talks to you and it basically reveals things to you. And your job is to be there at the right time to you know to understand that and and document it so that's that is the introvert piece for me and and in order to do that i require time and space to to do that i can't just um uh you know turn up somewhere and and get the shot and move on you know and and basically run and gun 20 or 30 you know locations in a day i i need i need time to you know, develop that relationship with what I'm with what I'm shooting and sit and appreciate it and try and capture it. Now, you know, like you say, thankfully a lot of landscape photographers and nature photographers are, are very similar and, and so as a result everyone's everyone's doing the trying to do the same thing. But you know, there are 
there are degrees on the spectrum as to how you know as to, to that and some people might be able to achieve that goal within five minutes some people might need five hours to you know to mm-hmm. to, to get that experience and, and capture it so i i suppose if you're working in a in a group it's really in you know it can be it can be stressful but it's also you know it can be transformative and you know collaborating with with other people is, is a bit like any relationship you know it's about finding the right partners to do it with and, and right people you know and if and if the you know the upsides and the downsides don't don't balance or or better then you know it's probably not it's probably not the arrangement for you and you know try try talking to someone else and, and shooting with someone else you know i yeah like any like any relationship you know just be honest with whoever you're shooting with and have those conversations talk about what you're enjoying from shooting together with each other, what, you, what you're not enjoying, and um, you know, see how the other parties are feeling and, and try and work out you know, what the solutions are to those problems. Um, and that's definitely, the, um, definitely I think, the, the, the strategy you have to apply to those sorts of things. Otherwise, it would just be a frustrating opportunity for you. You, you, have, to, you have to accept you're going to give something up but you need to look and, and try and leverage the, the opportunities that those relationships are going to give you as well, sort of thing. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about the photography culture in Australia and New Zealand is it seems like there's much more collaboration in terms of working together on projects or you know building each other up and things like that, whereas I, I, I look around here in the United States and I just don't see that happening as often or almost never <laughs> like i'm trying to think of an example of like there's i can think of maybe three or four total but it seems like in australia there's all kinds of these little partnerships that happen where people are propping each other up and building these little projects and things like that and i'm curious why do you think that is <laughs> uh, maybe it's something in the water i don't know i don't know i mean is your perception that perhaps someone ask you a question around that do you know is it because you think there's a perception that you're competitors or something in in you know in your community that you are competing with other photographers is that the is is you know is that perhaps one thing that might be i'm sure that's a piece of it for us in the united states for sure in terms of how people make their living in photography here it's very workshop heavy and or print sales and you know, there's a lot of territorialism that can, can kind of come into play there. So I'm wondering if that's a big piece of it. But I'm also, I feel like every project I've been a, been a part of, like the collaboration piece is what makes it successful. You know, it's like there's tons of things I've been a part of that there's no way I could have done on my own, you know. But having three or four partners help is, makes it makes it doable. So I don't know. Absolutely, yeah. I, I guess the, I, I suppose, yeah, there is an element with certainly the landscape photography, you, you don't, it's not something you need to, to do, you know, as a, you know, it's something you can, you can go as a solo and do, you don't typically need the, the, the you know, the support of others to go do it. I, I think one of the, one of the main value things I get out of working with other photographers and doing projects with them is you would, you tend to go a bit further, take an extra risk 
than you would do if you were just on your own. So whether that's whether that's you know driving down a road and you keep going for an extra few kilometers or miles before before you turn back because things are looking like you might get bogged or stuck out there or something, or whether it's you know walking that bit further into a wilderness or or whatever. Yeah, so I, I do think there is um, there's a um, or whether you visit a different part of the world with another photographer, you know, to to basically push where you would, might not be comfortable going on your own, but you know, there's a safety in numbers aspect. So I, mm-hmm. I think yeah. there are yeah there are certainly things that you can unlock from working together. Yeah, and and even if you think of it as a com- com- competitive relationship, yeah, I, I suppose comp you know. Having having competition isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, com- competition strives you to do better in, in what you do, and um, and uh, I, I guess, but that doesn't mean that you can't collaborate either, and you know, and and, and work together on things. And I, I I do think there's definitely a feeling of nurturing in in whether it's WA. I, I don't think it's unique to WA. I think Australia in general has this sort of nurturing in the photographic community i don't know whether that applies to some of the more commercial or say wedding photography sort of spaces but certainly in terms of what you might call art photography then then yes there is a um yeah there is a collaboration and and perhaps that's from the fact that you know are we really competing you know at, at the end of the day you know someone isn't gonna you know, someone either likes your print or your work, or they don't, and they, and they will buy it. They will buy it because they like it. It's unlikely that they will, right. you know, that they'll buy someone else's. You know, if they like it, they would they would get it anyway. Regard, you know, there's plenty of things that they can sort of look at out there, and and I suppose in terms of workshops and things like that, again, you know, the workshops that you run and you you know and, and other people run will will have very different fields. And and they're not really right. you know they, they are they are you know, people sign up to workshops for who's running them, not not what you're going to do or, or things like that. And that, that comes down to personality and relationships and, and, and those sorts of things. So I, I'm I'm not convinced that the that the competition aspect is something to be worried about. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about printing. Oh, I know that, yeah, I know it's something you're quite passionate about. You've got those beautiful prints behind you. You've got that giant, what is that, a Canon, what is that? A, is that the 51 or the 21? Uh, it's huge. Uh, 40, 41. The 41, 41. yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a bad boy right there. <laughs> I know a lot of photographers uh, these days, for whatever reason, it seems like they don't care about printing. So I'm curious how having the print as your end goal changes your approach in the field or your approach to photography. I guess there's a, there's a few things there. Um, it probably, I'd probably rewind a step actually, first of all, and, and, and say why, why I print. And, and because I, I think mm-hmm. for me, leaving an image on a screen, it feels a bit incomplete um, and isn't, yeah. Yeah, doesn't conclude the work. So <clears throat> there's something which is, yeah, it's like, definitely. It's like building a car but not putting the engine in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some well, not t- building a car and then not taking it for a drive, I guess. Right. But right. Uh, but um, <laughs> the um, there's something emotive about finishing an image and committing it to print. It, it, you know, it makes something more permanent. And um, 
yeah, I, I guess we're all getting more used to that swipe culture of, uh, of, of seeing things on phones where you just flick through images and you don't dwell on them. When someone hands a print to you, you know, you're, you're almost forcing them to, you know, to, in, to enjoy that. And there's less, you know, it's less temporary, less transitory, you know, and they can, they can start to appreciate it. And, and, you know, for me, a print has soul. I don't quite know how to explain that, but, you know, there's, there's a, there's a soul in a print and a, and I, and, and I feel sort of a screen image just doesn't, doesn't have that. Um, so that's why I do it, I, I guess. And, and then I guess in terms of how that influences what I do, I, I suppose, you know, to go from the screen to a print, that a screen can hide all sorts of um, deficiencies in, a, in an image, you know, especially if you're looking on Instagram or Facebook, you know, they're compressed or, or whatever, you know, they're small, yeah. small size images, you know, what are they, 3,000 pixels at best, you know, in, in terms right. of on a, on a long edge. Yeah, you're taking a big image, you're, you're compressing it down. Yeah, you can hide all sorts of things on and behind a, behind that. I think when your when your end goal is to to create prints and in particular large format prints, there is nowhere to hide. Yeah, you put a print under a gallery light or a, you know even a competition um, grade light. You know, it exposes everything in there. Things that you can't see on the screen. You know, unless you're really looking for them, you know, just become these um, glaring um, flaws in, a, in an image. So, so for me, there is a, you know, that's one of the ways it, it, it uh, changes my approach in the field. You know, I'm not looking, but it's most obvious, I'm not looking to crop anything. You know, if, if, you know, if you're cropping an image, you're already losing resolution. We spend a lot of money buying megapixels and, you know, and really sharp lenses and things like that. And then only to crop them down seems a bit of a travesty to me so i tend to i get annoyed with myself if i if i come back and have to crop an image because i can't um because and sometimes you can't you know I, I use generally use prime lenses so there's always an element right. of it but uh right. yeah that, that's that's one thing i do um the other thing i'm doing is i guess this comes with the why um the why what how discussion but the why you know i i'm thinking when i'm taking the image why am i taking this image what how is it making me feel and and therefore what what paper and things do i need that are going to you know support that and amplify that that message and emotion and um, and help you know elevate it so you know i think for me it does add another it adds that extra layer onto onto mm-hmm. you know when you take something off the screen and put it on paper you know it it the, the paper that you choose has its own character and things like that and they were all things that are going through you know it's quite common i'd be sat in the scene taking an image going oh this is going to look beautiful on a you know on a nice you know light textured matte paper or something like that you know it's it's already you know i can already sort of feel how it's gonna how it's gonna play out that's fascinating. But, yeah, I feel like most people don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I really, as, as you're probably getting, I really enjoy printing. Um, and and mm-hmm. I, I've said to a few people, I, I think actually photography is just uh, is a means to an end for me to support my printing habit. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that tends to be how I, how I think about it. And um, I enjoy the, the 
post-production and the thinking that goes into getting an image ready for print, yeah, which in itself is, is quite a skill set and I think mm -hmm. has improved my photography as a result. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. I mean, I'm sure you have much more attention to detail than if you weren't printing. You're going to start noticing things when you're editing your images that you probably wouldn't have normally even paid attention to. I'm sure you're much more meticulous about looking at the edges for distractions. You know, you're looking for little things in the scene that are might look like a small distraction on your phone or whatever, but when you print that thing, it's like, oh my God, how did I miss that? You know, mm -hmm. so I think printing, it just elevates your photography uh, to the next level. Yeah, I think I, I, I completely agree with that. The, like the, main, the main reason I do so much printing as well is, um, as, you, you know, as you're looking behind me, those images are actually, they're hanging on a, on a wire, um, I think I call it my washing line, but um, I basically print an image out and it will hang up there for, um, for weeks and I'll have a pencil and I'll mark up on it things that I like, things that I don't like, you know, and, and I'll live with that for a bit and it'll allow me to better understand the things that I like and don't like about it and I can go back and, and, and re-edit and reprint it do the same again and eventually I'll get to a point where I don't I'm stopping finding things in it and and that's when it's done and it will get a final final print and filed filed away and that's yeah that's my process I guess I would argue too that 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 kind of longer process of you know, looking at your prints and refining them, it probably over time helps you refine the types of images that you are looking for when you're out in the field as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think also it helps you understand the difference between wow factor and longevity of an image. So, mm, yes. um, uh, yeah, I, I think we all fall into a trap of loving our last image the most. You know, the last image that you edited is typically, you know, you, you, you tend to think a lot more of it but, you know, when, when you've just finished it. I think what I've tend to find is when you print stuff out, some of those images you keep coming back to and some of them you tire of quite quickly. And I think when you're, when you're selling art for people to put up in their homes that they're going to walk past every day, having you, you spending time with it and understanding that is, is quite important and um, certainly helps me, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So if people are new to printing and they don't, you know, they don't have a rich uncle who can, you know, fund their, <laughs> their, their lavish printing habits or they don't have a large budget or whatever, what are some ways that people can get going without, you know, putting a second mortgage on their house? That's, uh, okay. Um, I, again, <laughs> and maybe you're not I, the you right know, person to ask because you well, have a massive Canon 4100 behind you. <laughs> well, I'm not, so I, I guess I'm not sure there's a, there's a, um, there's an answer to that conundrum. I, but what I would, so perhaps one way of thinking this is, yeah, uh, the, the, an, an, another great YouTuber, a guy called Thomas Heaton, did, 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 a pod, did a talk on this a few years ago. And he talked about printing as being, um, being a heart decision, not a head decision. As in, you know, this is, for him, you know, it's not the most, you know, your, your accountant would hate it. You know, it's not something that you... <laughs> yes, that you, that and, you, your, and that, your spouse, and your spouse. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, that, uh, that's another anecdote, actually, for, uh, which re- remind me to come to come back to. But uh, I think, yeah, there's no disguising that printing is an expensive pastime. Yeah, and and you can't get over that there is a production cost per image. But what you have to be doing is getting. Um, development or quality value out of that process to offset that cost and if and if mm. that's not happening for you then it's not the right it's not the right pathway for you i guess you know for me editing and printing go hand in hand and if i can't print then i tend not to edit because it's sort of ingrained into into my workflow but um you are you ask a, a question so uh, I'll, I'll try and give you a few a few options here so um I guess find a friend. Yeah, chances are you've got a friend who's got a printer and and they're probably underusing it. And the most expensive thing you can do with a printer is not use it because they burn ink cleaning lines and heads and things like that when they're underused. Yeah. So find a friend and um, and see if you can pay them to do your prints for you. Yeah, that's that's a really I love good that. way. Really good way of doing it. Um, I, I guess sort of related to that is find a friend to buy a printer with. You know, if you buy something small, you could do a bit of a timeshare with it and you know, one month with you, one month with them or something like that. You know, it's not a it's perhaps a smaller investment that way, um, if you go down that route. I guess um the other thing would that I'd be remiss not to say is you know, strike up a relationship with a local printer. You know, the the there are yeah, expert master printers in most parts of the world these days. Yeah, they have a huge amount of experience and can give you feedback in terms of the quality of your printing um, and, and what you need to do to, to improve that work. Um, and I guess if you keep going back to the same printer, yeah, you can develop that relationship. You know, hopefully over time you can you can negotiate some preferential rates with them if you're if you're putting the volume work through them. And um, you know you can get consistency of results and all those sorts of things. So yeah, that that's one thing I, I would say that you you basically pay pay per use almost that that way. I mean, obviously you can go online and you can you know and, and you probably get better you you get a lower cost. I, I wouldn't say better value, but you get a lower cost online. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I think whilst improving the quality is likely to be lower as well when you go to these mass online print houses a couple of other options you know buy buy second hand yeah buy a second hand printer make sure it's working before you do it but that's you know people quite often like you say they get um, they they get disenfranchised with the printing you know realize they've not used their printer for a year and um, and that they're not you know not getting value out of it and they they will sell them so yeah, look on gumtree or ebay or whatever and see if you can pick up a, a second-hand bargain that particularly applies actually your large format printers they can be um quite a steal if you can get a good one good one second hand uh, and look, the other option is just start small yeah if you if you're printing on a smaller printer you know that's that's definitely going to be uh, be your most economical way on doing it but but overall um i would say you know you almost need to, it's a bit like buying a car. You don't buy a car without budgeting for, for the ongoing running costs of it. And right. so if you're going to get into printing, recognize that, yeah, there are some costs of ownership, budget for them. You know, think of it as an investment in your skills and development and quality of work. And just don't get too upset when you have to spend money on income paper. You know, it's just part of, part of growing and 
and improving. Um, yeah, that's what I did. The, I mean, I got this uh, Canon Pro 10. I got it for like a hundred dollars on eBay or something like that. You know, it's like, yeah. and it prints 12 by 18s. They look really good on Canon mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, it's you know, I can't print bigger than that, but it's still. I mean, it's if I want to see the work printed and have a physical print, it does a pretty good job, and I'm pretty happy with that. So, yeah. And I think the best way you can justify buying a printer is to have an exhibition or a print sale or something like that. And when you're selling your sure. own prints in a, in a volume, then printing soon becomes financially justifiable. You know, if you're going to go to a print house and get 20 44-inch prints run off, you, know, you don't need to do too many of those exhibitions, you know, two or three of those, and you're probably going to pay, pay for the printer sort of thing compared to getting getting the work done by a by a local print house sort of thing yeah totally makes sense what was your um what was your story that you were Uh, (laughs) so um so the first uh the first printer i bought was a it was an epson 24 inch i can't think what uh well not first but the, the the first big large format printer i bought was an epson 24 inch and um, and I, I bought that from Team Digital here in Perth, and you, you go in the studio in the sh- shop, and they've got a range of printers set up, and you know you can see the test printing, and you know, and of course in a in a large shop these things don't look particularly big, and <laughs> um, and and they don't sound particularly noisy either, but um, so I I get a phone call a few weeks later from from team saying okay your printer is going to be delivered today um you know uh we be in yes yes so yeah an hour or two later this this truck reverses into the into the driveway and uh you know this palletized thing gets gets offloaded on onto it which requires two or three people to lift you know to put the frame together and lift it and, and and then and then I get it into and and at this time I was I was the printer was actually in a um in in a living room in in the house and um <laughs> and it was of course much much bigger than uh, than I had visualized and so I, I could see already where the, where the conversation was going to go with the family <laughs> on this one and then when you fired this thing up yeah they are noisy they are very large format printers are noisy you've got vacuum pumps going and, and all sorts and this thing was like a vacuum cleaner so um so again it was just um it was quite invasive in the in the space it was in and we just had to find another solution and that's why i moved to we uh, we had a spare bedroom and, and that got emptied out and uh, everything moved into that but uh, yes that that was um that was quite an awkward moment it, it definitely didn't look that big or sound that noisy when i when i bought it but yeah they are are when you get to big printers yeah, there was a period of time where I was entertaining the idea of getting the 2100, I think, the 24-inch mm-hmm. uh, Canon printer. And um, I had, like, found the specs online, you know, like the measurements of, you know, height, width, depth, and all that. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I'm, like, measuring it out in here. I'm like, um, I don't think that'll fit. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, it probably would, but I'd have to, like, get rid of a bunch of stuff and but yeah it's amazing how much bigger they are than you actually realize mm-hmm. yeah it is so you de- and you definitely need a dedicated workspace for them you know they 
And, yeah. and when you get involved with handling large rolls of print or large rolls of paper and large format images as well, having somewhere to lay them out and um, right. so on and you know, roll them back up, that will that take space as well. Yeah. yeah so one thing I like when I was contemplating getting my own printer of that size, one thing that I just couldn't get past in my own mind was, okay, yeah, it'd be cool. I would love to be able to print my own like 24 by 36s or whatever. But then I was like, but what do you do with them? You know, especially if it's not for an exhibition or it's not like, and I like it. I don't have a terrible time selling my work, but it's like, gosh, man, now, now I'm going to have like this huge pile of 24 by 36 prints that I have to figure out what am I going to do with all these prints? So like, what, what, do, what do you do with your prints? <laughs> Ah, uh, that's that's a that is a very good question. So um, we have a local the local t- uh, college here that runs uh, runs a um, photography course, um, Metropolitan TAFE in Perth. They have an annual exhibition that the students run, but in, to um, to fund to fund the student exhibition, they ask local photographers to donate images to the exhibition, which the, they then have an auction. Um, or uh, to, a, to a different exhibit, and then they have an auction to raise funds for the for the students to put their own exhibition on. And um, so, one of the things I've done for the last few years is buy, um, you know, Canson and Ilford um, and so on do archival boxes, sort of A three plus archival boxes. And I will put a selection of twenty five images off the off the say cutting room floor into into one of those boxes and, and that gets auctioned off so that's mm. one of the things i do um do with them I but love yeah that. A, lot of, a lot of it ends up unfortunately in the recycle bin <laughs> uh, hey you know that's the kind of that's the kind of paper that the recyclers want mm-hmm. yes yeah <laughs> oh man yes. yeah no that's the hard thing it's like you know you've, it does feel a little wasteful it's probably no more wasteful than half the other hobbies we have so <laughs> no indeed i did um because i tend to sell my stuff limited edition and um i i reprint the final versions when they're you know for you know if there's an exhibition they don't take the one off the wall i'll reprint it because they inevitably they get scuffed or or something like that and right. um that's one of the most painful things is taking those to the tip and destroying them um, but uh, but my my daughter has taken to uh, painting over the top of them and being creative with uh, with her art pens and uh, creating her own piece of art. And she so she embellishes my images and then signs them at the bottom underneath my signature. And then and then they I go love to that. the tip. <laughs> See, they're probably worth more then, right? Maybe, probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, one more printing question. Um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made over the years oh, no. when it comes to printing? <laughs> Um, I, it's a long list. I wouldn't even know where to start on this. You know, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot, like I say, a lot of waste paper, unfortunately. Or and and look, that's definitely a learning process, and it gets better, and you do a lot mm. less of it as as time goes on. But um, yeah, the first thing I would say is just tired eyes in general. You know, I, if I've been working on an image for three or four hours, and then I print it out, and then I'll look at it in the morning. And I'm going, oh, what was I, what was I thinking? You know, the, the, you know, the right. magenta color cast all the way through that or something like that. You just, you, know, you just need to, so I'd say the first thing is before you do print, take a break from the image and, and come back to it the following day and make sure there's nothing, 
nothing glaring in there because you know the amount of paper I've wasted just by having tired eyes, I think, um, is is mm. is one thing. The, the other one I tend to find is the Photoshop interface for printing used to be at least, and I, I don't use it anymore. I use Mirage um, because of this problem, but it is the most confusing thing ever. And trying to get the orientation of the paper right on the page and the margins and all those sorts of things, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd inevitably end up you know, either printing in the wrong position or upside down or you know, rotated 90 degrees or something like that. So... Um, initially, I had a lot of problems with that. I moved to a, um, to a, Mirage, a package called Mirage, which is a plugin. Um, it, it's it's overkill for most applications, I would say. You know, it's it's quite an expensive product, but it, in terms of the lack of paper, I think I could justify it just based on the the, the, <laughs> you know, the wasted wasted images. But uh, essentially, that that makes sure that I you know it's a much clearer interface. It's a what you see is what you get layout on the page. You know, I can lay out multiple images on rolls or sheets and see how they're going to look mm. out. Set up all the individual borders on them. You know, all those sorts of all those sorts of things. Um, and mm. you know, it'll tell me if the profile I've got selected isn't the same as the printer and vice versa. So yeah, that's that's um, yeah, that saved a lot of time and money there. End of roll. You know, I basically if you're printing on a forty-four inch. Yeah, I might get three quarters of the way through the print, and then the printer goes, ah, "Sorry, you're out of out of roll, and you've just wasted put down you know, a, a ton of ink on a sheet, and you've not quite got enough." Again, most most printers these days are getting better at tracking paper usage, um, but uh, again, just tracking that yourself and writing on a pencil on the outside of the box how much you printed off each time helps you helps you avoid that problem. Blocked heads again, or something like that. Not not on the not on the new printer, but the old printer I had was um, forty four was second hand and getting a bit long, um, getting a bit old, shall we say, towards the end of its life. And um, it got to a point where I was probably only yeah fifty percent success rate of getting a large format print out without a defect coming through. Um, mm. And that was that for me was the time to get rid of the printer because yeah, there's. There's a fair cost involved in, in wasting a, wasting paper that size. Damaged paper is a, is another one. You know, um, mm. especially with rolled paper, you can find you know if you if you drop a roll of paper, that can quite easily go all the way. That an indent can go through you know a long way into <laughs> into that. It's surprising how far they dents go into paper. So um, yeah, I yeah. um I ordered a box of uh, 1218s. Canson Infinity Canc uh, rag paper from B and H um, must have been last year, and you know the package looked perfectly fine, everything mm -hmm. looked good, and I wasn't planning on using it because I was going to work on a project later, so I didn't open it till inspect it, which was my mistake. And so, like maybe two months goes by, I open the box and to start printing, and I noticed that somehow in shipping or whatever, one of the corners got hit. Every single page had like a corner that was crushed. I was like, "Oh, are you yeah. kidding?" <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've had I've had similar before. So I've I've had both. I've had um, stuff I bought in store and got it home to find that problem, and, and thankfully got a good relationship with you know, in this case Team Team Digital. And you go back in, and they know you. And they'll say, yeah, okay, fair enough. And and I think you know I've learned as well these days if I'm buying some if I'm buying a you know 
a big box of paper, then I would probably open it in store and check it in store and, and go, yeah, that, that's all good sort of thing. Um, yeah. But I, I have also, you know, dropped a roll of paper myself before I marked it up. And that's on me. You know, that, that's my cost at, at that point. But um, yeah, it's, it's very, very frustrating. The other one is just dust on paper. You know, the, mm. you know, uh, yeah, we try our best to keep all the paper clean, but inevitably you, know, you, you get a, a, you know, a piece of hair or, or even just a loose piece of coating on the, you know, something comes off, a fleck of paper comes off from the mill. And um, so brushing the paper before putting it through your printer can, can help avoid that. But again, a 44-inch print, which especially um, if you're printing out some, um, you know, some very flat images, you know, they might just have one, you know, one, you know, one color or something like that. It's all about you know, just simplicity. There's not a lot of texture in there. It's going to really stand out. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to reprint the image. So. Yeah, or you have to get really good at using a Sharpie. True. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So no. again, when you when you're talking about um, when you it, yeah, the, uh, and look, there are there are certain if it's a black part of the image, you can get a, you can get away with with black, but color you'll never color match the what's no, going I was, on. I was just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I had one more topic and or question for you, but I think it's a juicy one. But we'll save it for uh, a bonus episode for Patreon after we're done. So and we'll, intriguing. We'll tease. Yeah, we'll we'll tease people with that here. But uh, tell us about the book project that you're working on right now. Yeah, I was I was um, so myself and um, Matt Palmer, Mika Boynton, and Ricardo um, have been working on a project together since last year, and um, they've all I, I guess um, all over the last year been 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 through the through the podcast, and it, it was great. I was to, Powerhouse. Great, great to hear them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're a huge, a huge talent pool there. My, myself accepted, but uh, oh come yeah, on, brilliant, brilliant experience working with those guys. So we um, we went to a part of the Flinders Ranges, um, and I, I guess as a as a group, we we spent a week there. We sort of spent it. I, I suppose trying the 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 objective was really to 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 document the, the the landscape as we saw it individually on the uh, you know on the day that we found it with a view to sort of you know because I think if you live in an area and you create a book when you live in the area of those images you know you can you can go to a hundred different sunsets at the same spot and you know and pick the best one you know, clearly when you're just visiting you don't have that you don't have that that luxury and so we wanted to um, we wanted to try and create something that reflected a genuine representation of what we you know, what we you know, what we saw what inspired us uh, as we found it in the conditions on the day sort of thing. So the first half of that trip was spent with a lot of cloud and rain and fog, and then the second half was was clear blue skies and um, and color and, and all those sorts of things. So. Um, but the, the the project is really um, what we're trying to do is collate that into um, into a book that hopefully we can get out to people um, later this year, but probably more likely early next year. Yeah, and just real quick, what was your why? Well, I, well, I think the why was really about just um, was about four photographers just uh, trying to document four. Ph- Photographers' individual interpretations of this diverse and ancient landscape. That was really the, really the why. You know, um, 
we all we're all landscape photographers. We all have very different styles. Um, you know, um, yeah. Matt is um, Matt is a phenomenal land um, landscape and nature photographer. He tends to see those sort of have have that environmental commentary in in his yep. images. Mika is one of the most incredible abstract landscape photographers. She also has a uh, just this beautiful understanding of the of the heritage and culture of, of these areas and 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 tends to yeah um, be able to capture that and represent that in her images and and Rick is um, just his his mind is something else and um, his ability to you know, conceive of composite images that tell this you know, tell this much bigger story and narrative. Um, again, it's just something, something very different. And then, and then there's me. I, d- I don't know why the other three had me there, but it was, it was a brilliant <laughs> and not, and yeah, fantastic experience. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, they're they are all very fun to talk to, and you guys are all different in your own ways. And it's been fantastic having each of you on the show to to really just learn more about you and your photography and your approaches to it. So it's it's been really great. Well, and this is how I found out about you uh, with my next question. So who would you recommend for the show? Who are some photographers that inspire you? Yeah, okay. Um, so first off, I would, I, would, I would recommend having a chat with Chris Dark. So as I said, Chris Dark is someone I spend a lot of time shooting with. Um, we, we both see, see the world very differently, but we both have, you know, end up with very similar, you know, similar styles of image i think so um but he he is very thoughtful and very much about the why and the you know the the you know, why why are we doing this what's the backstory you know, he, he and he spends a lot of time when we're away writing and thinking about you know and, and documenting how he's feeling and all, all those all those aspects um he also does some incredible um I mentioned we, we did a series of taking images with Vaseline. He he's taken that to the next level and, and sort of um, uses paintbrushes and things like that when he's applying it and so on. So I definitely encourage you to have a think about him in terms of some creative, uh, yeah, creative in-camera processes that, that he uses. Um, the, the next person, um, and, and definitely definitely not the, um, uh, you know, um, not understate is Tony Hewitt. He is an incredible photographer. I don't think you've had him on the show. I, at least I couldn't find find him listed on your on, on your no, on your his, history. Yet. But um, but he um, so he was the person who probably got me excited and motivated about um, aerial photography. I did a I did a workshop with him. He is one of the most talented photographers I know. He has. You know, we talked a bit earlier about longevity, and um, you know, he he has been producing you know, quality work, you know, at the highest level for for decades. And um, he would he yeah would have some great stories, and he's also all about the why. You know, why why are you doing this? What's the story? What's the narrative? You know, trying to trying to capture that and reflect that in his art. So. Um, Someone, someone to talk to definitely. Um, Ewan Dunsmuir is someone I, who I have not met personally, but um, I 
I follow him on um, on YouTube. He's not the most prolific poster. I think he, he's had some absences for a few years. He's based in New Zealand, and but he's originally from I think the Orkney Islands, and he has this incredibly beautiful way of explaining things. He's very much about capturing in camera. Um, he's about being in the landscape and enjoying it and um, um, about getting off the beaten track and all that sort of thing. So I think he would very much resonate with um, with your listeners. Um, John Woodhouse is a is a um, another WA photographer, originally from South Africa. Um, he is a um, he's not a pure land, landscape photographer. He he is what I would call someone who has an extreme breadth and depth to their work. He he does fine art nudes. He does he does a lot of nature photography, a lot of landscape photography, a lot of abstract photography. Um, but the you know the quality of that work um, and and just his. Um, you know his passion for the for the subject would make him a, a really good um, a really good um, person to talk to, and then and then last but not least um, Tanya Malkin who is another um, Australian uh, landscape aerial photographer. Um, she I, I would say she's more than that. She's uh, my from my limited experience of her. She is is probably what you call an artist as much as as much as anything. Yeah, you know, she. Um, she, she's a brilliant painter. She she has um, produces some amazing quality work, and I think it would be interesting to see to to, to hear inside and and think what hear what her thoughts are. I love it. I love it. Well, Chris, this has been fantastic, and um, I, I just love doing these podcasts because every single week I learn something new, and I get energized about something else. So so thank you for your contribution. No problem. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you to Chris for the wonderful chat. If you want to hear Chris and I debate about just how far enough is enough when editing aerial photographs, you can check out that bonus episode over on Patreon. Chris was a fantastic guest, and I think you'll love the chat. I would love to hear from you and get your feedback on the episode. The best way to join in on that conversation is to join us for free on Patreon. Each week, I will be creating a thread for the episode on Patreon for listeners to engage in. To get started, join us over on patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen, or visit the link in the show notes. I look forward to engaging with you all over there. Lastly, I want to announce that we will be launching an executive producer system for our Patreon supporters. The idea is quite simple. For every $500 in lifetime support of the show that you contribute, you will get an executive producer credit, which you can proudly use to put your name on a past episode, your stamp of approval, if you will. We will be keeping track of these and making them public so that people can see which episodes have the highest value to our listeners. If you're already a Patreon supporter and would like to use a credit, please reach out to me and we can get started. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.